Welcome to the Storycraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. Storycraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Thanks for joining us once again here in the Storycraft Cafe. We've got a dynamite show for you, as always. Jade Scheiback joins us to talk about writing young adult dystopian mashup fiction. It's a great show. You're going to love it. Be sure to join us over at storycraft.cafe so that you can be notified of new shows coming up, interviews that we do live on YouTube uh, that you can join in. You can post comments and, uh, you know, join in the conversation live while it's going on. We're going to be shifting focus on the podcast a little bit. We're still going to be bringing you author interviews that you uh, have love and, uh, you know, with with people that are publishing now and, you know, talking about what's going on in the industry and in crafting stories. But we're also going to bring you more educational content. We've been getting comments from people uh, wanting to, you know, us to explore different things like uh, different uh, forms of plotting or character development or world building or, you know, anything that involves uh, crafting your story. We're going to be bringing you those kinds of shows as well as our author interviews. So I say that to just ask you to please be patient with us as we shift focus a little bit, but I think you're really going to love the content we're going to be bringing you. Storycraft.cafe is the place to come join in the conversation and join a community of like-minded writers like you. Now on to our show. And we are live here in the Storycraft Cafe. I'm your host, Hank Garner. And today I am so excited to have Jade Scheiback on the show with me. She's got an amazing book. Aquios is uh, the first book, I hope, uh, in a series that uh, that is forthcoming. Uh, it is a futuristic, dystopian sci-fi slash fantasy it, it it's such a genre bending book but this was so much fun to read um welcome to the show jade thanks for having me hank i'm excited I, to have you and i apologize to any of our listeners who uh, might be joining us late we had a couple of technical difficulties we had to work through but we're here now and uh happy to have you on the show jade um Jade, I like to start sh uh, each show with a fun question to get things started. Uh, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Oh, um, I just think that came through reading, to be honest with you. I would yeah. read books and just be fascinated by them and the places they would take me. I was um, as a small child out on the prairies in Alberta. So, you know, I had the same view every day across vast fields of, of emptiness, wheat fields. Um, and it just the place like a journey to in my imagination were, were great. And then I had that voice that would say, I think you could do this. Um, and actually, I never tried to do it. I didn't try to do it until I was, you know, in my late 40s. But it would that voice was always there saying this should be something on your bucket list. Wow. Um, 
I'm always fascinated by people's journey uh, to writing and publishing uh, because of the many, many interviews that I've done. It's a very rare few that writing and publishing have been their singular focus. Most people you know, know early on that they want to tell stories, they want to write books. And then, you know, you get busy with, uh, you know, paying bills and raising a family and, you know, just collecting life experiences and writing, you know, drifts farther and farther away. But there's always something that brings it back. Um, you have a fascinating story of traveling the world and working in areas that that on the surface don't seem to have anything to do with writing. Uh, but what was it that brought you back around? I just had more free time. You know, I started later in life because as you, you know, to your point, um, you've got to pay the bills. You need to have that stable career. Uh, The mortgage comes along, the children follow, the pets follow. Um, So there's not a lot of time for this. You know, even in the evenings, I wanted to spend time with my kids. I didn't have time to sit down for four hours in one go and, and at the computer and write after I'd been all day in front of a computer working. So... It was always part of the family conversation. And I think as my children were leaving, I have three daughters. And as they were leaving, they said, okay, stop moping around. This isn't the end of the world. It's actually time for you to start writing your book. And as my eldest graduated, we took this great trip um, down the PCH highway. That was her dream. So we did that um, as a family. And while we were trapped in the car today, or for all of those hours uh, on that trip, on those days, I said, you know, let's, let's start to brainstorm a story. So I came up with a concept and asked him a lot of questions. And that became a very fun family game during those hours in the car from San Francisco to LA, um, where we just hashed out some stuff and Aqueous was born. And, and driving down the PCH, you had the visual stimulation for what, I can only assume birth this story. I, oh, I, I, I have a vision in my mind of you driving down that highway, looking at the ocean and all of this starting to come alive. We were very impacted, Hank, because there had just been the fires in Malibu. Um, and then we had a landslide after the fires. The, the landslide, as you know, oh, yeah. went through Big Sur, Sur and wiped out the PCH. So we had to take um, a detour. We had visited Monterey, the aquarium, Moss Landing. And then after that, we could not continue through Big Sur. We had to take um, a detour. And I was actually just gassing up the car. I was planning to drive back um up now i'm i think i had to go back to santa barbara perhaps and get on the 101 i'm not from that area so um but i was at the gas station and this fellow gassing out next to me said no you can take this this road called the um i believe it's the nascimento road um that goes through a military base so i gassed up the tank and thought well that's excellent news on we'll go and the road is hair raising. It's just cliffs <laughs> and turns and one lane. And we thought we we're going to go off the side. And we had this great view of the ocean on one side. And we had all this crispy land on the other side, on the hillside. Um, and it just made us think, you know, what happens when the sun is so hot and angry that we have nowhere left to go? What if everything burns? And that's how we got to this premise of, of this world under the water. Wow. Um, to, to backtrack for just a minute, um, you 
went to college or university as, as you guys up North say, um, and you, did you study English? Do, do I have I that did. part right? English literature, mm-hmm. English literature. So a, a perfect education for someone who's going to become a writer. And perfect then let's wait, unless your parents think it's useless and they say, <laughs> you know, what, you're just going to work with your dad because you're, you're really wasting your time here, Jade. Mm-hmm. Well, well, then you went to work in finance, right? Which is, of course, the the perfect next step from studying English literature right. to becoming yeah. an author. You have to work in finance. That's part of the the, right. the training, right? You have to work with your dad, Jade, is what they said. So go and get uh, a job. And and the the job with my dad um, was at an insurance company. So I spent uh, fifteen years working um, in insurance, which is a very, very stable career. Lots of nice people there, but I don't necessarily think I was a small child saying, wow, I can't wait to get to the insurance company and stay there for the rest of my life. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I talk to a lot of writers and and you hear this story um, over and over again. Uh, if you ask someone for writing advice and, and I think Stephen King and his book on writing um, said it again, that to become a writer, you really need to do two things. You need to read a lot because you need to understand how stories work. And then you need to write a lot. You need to practice, practice, practice. And I think that you need to actually add a third to that. And a, the third I would add is you need to interact with a lot of people sure. because you need to understand how conversations work and how interpersonal relationships, the, the, the give and the take of, of just being with other humans. And I would think a job like the insurance uh, business where you meet a lot of people, you interact with people probably a lot of times on their best days and their worst days. Um, I would think that those were things that you could file away in your writer toolkit, even if you didn't know you were doing it. Absolutely. Um, And to your point, the worst days, you know, people, you know, insurance clients call the insurance company when they're having some sort of tragedy. So you you really have to be empathetic to that and you have to be helpful. Um, But everything in life, you know, it's building blocks of a great story. So, um, you know, I left Alberta. I moved to Ontario, but then I went onward to the Middle East. I left insurance. I I fell into an IT company that had me traveling through the Middle East, lecturing on anti-money laundering and the counterfinancing of terrorism. Um, Then I ended up at a commodities exchange, running their compliance department and just all of these travels and all of these people and experiences. Um, And then personal things, you know, I got divorced. That was really hard. When you get divorced, you, you know, the main concern aside from how will you afford it is who gets the kids and do you see the kids? And that's a big theme in aqueous also is this yeah. battle for the kids and and the relationships between parents and kids and that dynamic what was it like moving to the middle east from uh from alberta and then toronto to to the other part of the world would that had to be culture shock i thought that the biggest culture shock was alberta to ontario to be honest really? with you. Yeah, Canada is vast and and Canada has a lot of great people in it, but they are very different. Um, And then when I went to them and, you know, Toronto is a very fast city. It's like New York. Um, So everyone's very busy. They have layers and layers, generations of family already. There's not a lot of time for newcomers, per se. Um, When I went to the Middle East, uh, the Emirates is a very unique place because 20% of the population at that time was local and 80% was expatriate. So everybody needs a friend. 
And it was really easy to jump into that community and meet new people. So, um, and people from all over the world and just learn new things, but it was a very welcoming, inclusive environment. I I had a, a great time while I was there. My my family and I moved uh, out west for a couple of years, um, uh, a couple of decades ago now. But uh, the the city we moved to had like five military bases in it. So everyone in that city was from somewhere else. They all got transferred in. And it was uh, it, it, a similar experience that everyone's looking for a friend. Everyone's looking to connect with someone. And it was ironically very easy to to make connections in a place where no one has any roots. Right. You know, I haven't put this together before, Hank, but now that we're talking about this, I believe that maybe Marisol, my protagonist, as you know, she winds up in a place she wasn't meant to be. And she has to make all of those connections as a very young person with new people, with strangers. And so, you know, maybe that's where that storyline came from. I, I, I hadn't connected that before, but that could be part of it. Yeah, it could be. It's so funny that that um, I some people think about themes and um, and and kind of the subtext of a book before they start writing, but most of the time I've. I've learned that these things emerge in the writing and it's only from from the finish point looking back that you can see those things emerge. It's, you know, one more piece of magic to add to the one more layer writing. That's right. And it's always better when you have many stories, many plot lines twist and turn together, entwined from the beginning until the end. And I certainly in my experience, this is my debut novel, but certainly I found that um, different storylines and the the activities of the characters, they revealed themselves to me. You know, I, I knew the beginning and I knew the end and I had to fill it in. Um, and that it became quite full and rich as I tried to do that. But there was a lot of content, a lot of things I wanted to put in there to make the story believable and the characters relatable and believable. Yeah. How long were you in the Emirates? Uh, about nine and a half years, just short of 10 years. Oh, wow. Um, did, is there anything else that shows up in the book that was influenced from your time there? Well, I just think the heat, the, you know, when you walk out the door in Abu Dhabi and it's 52 degrees Celsius base temperature, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's a lot. Um, And they don't give you the humidex. (laughs) They don't give you the humidex because you don't want to know. And I think a lot of times it doesn't climb over 52, even though the car says 53 or 54, because, you know, there's safety precautions at some point the airplane shouldn't take off and things should just stop working but that that's expensive to shut down industries and make things stop and hold people up so you know they had five word weather over there you know and it changed every day today is sunny hot again you know wow look at blue sky you know i think we had clouds six days a year usually unfortunately it was on the you know the day of the pga tournament the european tour would show up and those boys always yeah clouds and rain um but the sun element and trying to survive in that and just what you do of of course that's that's part of the story yeah um aqueous is a science fiction um 
slash fantasy slash dystopian novel. Um, it, it really has a foot in all of these genres and it's like a six footed creature apparently. Um, but were you always a fan of these types of stories? Oh, I think so. I think so. I think, um, you know, unfortunately, young adult fiction, um, which tends to, to always kind of grapple with this, these themes or these genres, um, a lot of people don't read it and it's very crossover. And I, I always really liked it. Um, I could have made my characters slightly older. I could have made them 18, but I felt like in the world they were living in, aqueous, um, it's rooted in math and science and survival. So these kids grew up really quick. You know, they're graduating and being assigned almost as engineers in their life's work at the age of 16. So because they're 16, that's how it became young adult. But, you know, if we look at, you know, all the stories that I like, you know, the Hunger Games and Divergent and, and, you know, now you have like Station Eleven. You have young characters kind of leading the way, solving the problems, changing the world, coming up with the solutions. And I, I really like that. You know, also I had my own teenage daughters at the time. So um, one of their friends who read the, the novel recently said, wow, you know, did you help your mom with the dialogue? And they said, no, she just does teenage speak because she's around us all the time, right? Slay the day and that kind of stuff. Hmm. One of the um, the things I loved uh, a lot about the book was the Mer stations. Where did the idea for that come from? Well, I I did mix up languages a little bit. So Mer is the is the French word for sea. So it was just you know a station under the sea. Um, but the premise of this is you know I don't know if you saw that movie. It was fantastic. Don't look up that. Yeah. I just thought that was fantastic. You know, we're not all going to make it to space. Uh, you know, Elon Musk is working on this and so is Jeff Bezos and, and all of them, but um, Richard Branson, there's not going to be enough room for everyone. And it just seemed to me if we were, you know, decimated by fire and heat at some point, what rising sea levels, we've still got this great ecosystem, sorry, it's ecosystem, this uh, vast ocean that we know nothing about, well, we know some things about it, but we know far less than we should. Right. And there are some really dynamic, deep parts of the ocean that we have very little information about that are safely tucked away from the sun. And so if, if the sun is personified and the sun is out to punish us and make us pay for kind of our greed and our misdeeds and the way that the planet was treated, where can we go? And these MER stations, there's three of them in the deepest parts of the ocean. Uh, they became my solution for an environment where we could potentially survive. It, it uh, is reminiscent of, um, uh, it, you know, stories that, that we heard growing up of the lost city of Atlantis. Mm -hmm. um, 20 leagues know, and, and see, all that stuff. Yeah. And, and it's so and fun. I, I've heard a lot of comparison uh, from this story to the Hunger Games, which you mentioned a minute ago. Um, but there's a there's a little different outlook. Um, yes, there's a competitive nature like there is in the Hunger Games. But uh, the I, I kind of view this story as a little more hopeful and a little sure. more um, there's there's a. Um, it, everything's not bleak. Um, I, I'm not right. sure. I'm, I'm 
I'm grasping for words here, but there's uh, it, it, it just does. It's dystopian without being um, futile and without being just uh, nihilist uh, in, in the sure. end. Um, what, what do you, how did your worldview kind of impact your view of this very uh, bleak future? Well, I think, you know, I think we're kind of in the bleak future now. Unfortunately, yeah. uh, we had some some stories, some events this year that were just horrible. And yet we couldn't look, we couldn't look away. So if we, if we take, for example, the, the ocean gate Titan disaster, Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a week where we were glued to our televisions or screens, hoping for a good outcome, probably assuming the worst, um, but we couldn't look away. And then we had the, the Lahaina fires just, just heartbreaking stuff. Um, and so those elements are, are in this story, which I guess make things bleak, but the, the humanity of the story and the people working together, trying to find solutions and, you know, the equality, they don't have a lot of individual possessions. They are all uniform until the end. And it's not until the end that we understand that there is control. There is a different agenda. We don't even really know who the um, antagonist is until the end. You know, everyone just assumes it's going to be that annoying guy named Felix. And then that is flipped. And then at the end, it the true, um, you know, the true nature of the, the secrecy and the deceit is, is revealed at the very end, which, of course, is perfect because it lends itself towards more stories, which is what I need. And when I started, I really didn't want to become a one hit wonder. I knew I had a lot of material and I really wanted to cut it into a few books because everybody loves it. Everybody loves a trilogy. Oh, yeah. So from from this trip down PCH with your girls and you guys are brainstorming and coming up with story ideas and, and you from from your description, this is something that you had um, talked about, had always assumed that at least as a hobby, this was this was part of who you were. How did you go from this um, brainstorming session with your girls to actually putting pen to paper or hands to keyboard and actually get the process started. So there was a, there was an outline just on my phone to start with uh, just chapter headings, trying to lay it out in a way that would be interesting. Um, And then I, I started, you know, like I think everybody does at the beginning, I filled in a few chapters and then I realized I really had the end could really see the ending. So I wanted to fill that in. Um, and there is a link to the, the very last few paragraphs to um, something that happens like a scene. And I think it's chapter three. Um, and then I had to fill in the middle. Um, I actually didn't have at the beginning, the trials, you know, the trials are a huge part of the competitive nature of the, the book. And it kind of lends itself to what these kids have to go through and their training. It's kind of the buy-in, you know, every good dystopian needs um, slogans and brainwashing. And there's really no need for these kids to compete against each other. And it they're dangerous. The trials are dangerous and the trials are scary. Um, so I didn't have that when I first started. And I, I put that, I, I came to that um, later on probably after my daughter had gone to university and everyone was busy. So I no longer really had them around to locked in a car to brainstorm with me. Um, 
But I mean, that was my process. I spend a lot of time thinking and dreaming. I spend a lot less time in front of my computer typing it out. You know, when I'm in front of the computer, that's just typing. When I'm driving in the car with the radio turned off or I'm, you know, I'm sitting on the sofa with my coffee and it looks like I'm doing nothing. My mind is actually racing through ideas and solutions and conversations with characters. I'm, you know, it's a great way to just kind of spend time with myself. I think as I get older, I get a little bit more introverted. People expect an extrovert, but I do like having just quiet time at home. And this really lends itself to building these stories. Yeah. You, you said that you envisioned a series. Um, did you think of it at, in terms of a series from the very beginning or did you start writing it and then think, okay, I need to find uh, kind of an arc for this and then figure out how to continue that arc, you know, into subsequent editions. I knew I wanted a very action-packed ending for the first book. Um, and I knew I wanted some answers, but not all the answers. And um, as you know, as a reader, you, you know how it ends. And it just leaves so many unanswered questions. So, um, yeah, I could see really early on that I had three books and I wanted three books. I, I didn't want to just write one and then have to come up with a whole new idea. I have lots of other other ideas for books, but I just thought, you know, this this was far too much for 300 pages. Um, and there's more people that we, we need to meet. There's more places we need to go. And then we have to have everyone come together. And in the end, we need to have a solution. So those things were with me really early. Gotcha. Um, when you finished the first book, um, how did you start thinking about publishing and and, you know, uh, getting this book out, defining an audience and kind of what was your process there? Oh, so I had no I had no experience. I had no um, no network. I knew nothing about the industry. Um, when I initially started, I had thought, OK, this is a bucket list item. I want to create something. Uh, for my children that can sit on the shelf. If nobody else reads it, we'll read it. It'll be yeah. fine. I can go the self-publishing route. I can make you know, 100 copies and just keep them around for friends and family. And, and that's that. Um, so my eldest daughter graduated in June of 2018. We went on a road trip later that year. I took a cruise down the coast of Croatia. And on that cruise, it was a small ship. So all the passengers mingled and I met a woman named Gina. And after I finished that cruise, I thought, okay, it's time to start writing. So I think I started writing Aqueous in October of 2018. I worked on it for probably three or four months. Then in Canada, we have this thing called summer every year and the weather's usually terrible. So in summer, nothing gets done because people just seem to be outside. And then I finished it up, I would say in the fall of 2019. Um, and at that point I was in touch periodically with Gina because we had a really nice time on this cruise and we thought we should get together again. And I had mentioned that I was writing and that I had finished a novel and it was something all, that I always wanted to do. And she said, oh, I like writing too. And we were just texting back and forth. And she said, did I, did I mention that I was on, oh, and I should, before I reveal this, I should say that I was querying at this point. Like I was sending out the emails and the synopsises and the 10 or 20 pages that they wanted. And, and I, I had just started that, but 
it did feel, you know, it feels like you're sending out your soul and you're never yeah. going to come back. Um, I did have some great conference calls with some industry people. And that was just through friends trying to tell everyone what I was doing. At that point, I had come out of the closet with it and let a few friends read it. So they were helping me try and find people, which was nice. But this this text conversation with Gina, she went on to say, did I mention that I was on the board of a publishing house and my best friend is like editor in chief? I said, no, Gina. I think I would remember that. <laughs> I think I would remember that one. So she said, do you want Kate to read it? I said, yeah, I would love it if Kate would read it. And Kate read it. And Kate called and said, yeah, we love this. We've never done YA before. We normally, uh, you know, t- we dabble in poetry and memoir and that sort of thing. And we would love to give this a go. So we were off and that was great. The only problem at that point, you know, and I don't think that was even in... I think I finished fall of uh, 2019, but I think that whole querying process might've been during 2020. I think I actually signed my contract with Red Hen Press in December of 2020. So at that point though, we needed a, a slot, we needed a window for publication. And the only setback was as a smaller press, they're very reputable, but they're, they're indie, they're smaller. They do fewer books and, than the bigger houses do. Um, she said, we, we really don't have time for this, especially with the pandemic until May of 2023. So I had a long wait, um, but I was a newcomer. I was thankful for the opportunity and I was willing to wait and just give it a shot. Having that downtime, um, did that allow you time to start thinking about your follow-ups and, and kind of the, what the shape of that the series would ultimately take? Yeah, I did. I did that. I mean, I'm, I'm almost done book two. Um, but I think I also spent a lot of time on edits. I spent a lot of time getting to know people, learning about the industry, um, reading, just, I should be able to say to you by now, I've written six books since then. And, and that, that actually didn't happen. Um, and I don't know why that didn't happen, but that didn't happen. Um, but yeah, I've learned a lot since then. And I, I am appreciative for the time. I think if it had been rushed, um, I would have learned a lot less. I've been able to work directly with my publisher because I did give up on that querying process and I don't have an agent. So that's a unique thing for me is a lot of people don't do this without a literary agent. Um, will I look for one in the future? Perhaps. Um, but I also think I could stick with red hand and publish the rest of the series and be perfectly happy with that too. Wow. Do you, um, was there anything that you learned during the editing process? Um, sometimes when you edit a book, um, it, it's more of a, uh, series of small adjustments that are just kind of made throughout the manuscript. And sometimes that's a, that's an aha moment. There's, there's something that you're just too close to the manuscript and it takes someone outside of your head to kind of see the thing that that could make it work so much better. Um, was there ever a moment like that for you or was it just a series of incrementally making the book better and better? Yeah, there was nothing. Um, there was nothing. Um, 
really drastic that was changed. We tried to make it a bit more suspenseful in the in the um, trials. You know, there's a large cast of characters, so we tried to um, we had to get to know those characters a little bit more, more dialogue. But that was really Kate's only feedback. Um, after that, it was just me reworking it to try and make it better, um, reading it aloud. Um, Unfortunately, it was something I didn't do until I started working on my podcast. And then there were little things I found, you know, after I'd already signed off on that final final draft. Um, anyway, the, I do think going into book two, it will be more polished before I submit anything. I don't want to have the amount of work that I had with Aqueous with the next one. I think I, you know, I had no idea that once you kind of surrender um, that manuscript to the publishing house, you can no, you no longer have control over that Word doc on your computer. Every little change has to be submitted, you know, um, pair, you know, page 26 on um, paragraph two, line one needs to be this and not that. And that is an astronomical amount of work for a comma, let's say. Right. You no, know? and it just goes on and on. So I, I won't do that again. It'll, it'll be really clean before I ever submit anything again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When do you foresee book two uh, hitting the shelves? Oh, I don't know about that. That'll come down to the publisher, but I'm, I've got at least two more months worth of work on it to, um, to nice. completion, I would think, and that'll be frantic. Um, so, you know, it needs to be built out quite a bit now, even though I can see the whole story in my head, there was, I couldn't see the characters, for example, I couldn't see the exactly how the journey would take place and what would be, you know, within each story, there has to be multiple storylines and, and different interaction between characters. Um, and, and those take some time. All right. Aqueous is available everywhere. Now, uh, visit your local bookstore. And if you don't see it on the shelf, ask them to get it. Um, if you don't have a great local bookstore to go to, we'll put links to it, uh, where you can get it from Amazon in the show notes of this episode. Jade, if people are just discovering you and want to, follow along the journey and, and, uh, you know, it, look for news coming up and that sort of thing. Is there a place online they can connect with you? Absolutely. I'm really available on Instagram at Jade Shyback or my website, um, jadeshyback.com. Excellent. We'll link those up, uh, to make it easy for folks to find you as well. Uh, Aqueous available everywhere now. Go grab it. Jade, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for Thank taking you. time Thanks. to come it's on the really show. Nice. Thank you. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk to authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool should not be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at DabbleWriter.com and start your free trial today. Thanks for listening.